If you were going to invent a tool for trauma-focused psychotherapy, you'd come up with MDMA. Psychedelics are too good to stay within this tiny fraction of society who use them recreationally. They're too useful medically. So we need to find a mechanism to roll these out on a large scale for mass public health treatments. And it's really Mm. exciting that we're in that place now. You know, they really are tremendously beneficial and they can benefit far more patients than the small number of hippies who've been using them for the last 50 years. So I'm all for medicalization, or even if you want to call it commercialization, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. It's For me, it's about increasing accessibility to more people who could benefit. The placebo effect is very powerful with all drugs, and it's particularly powerful in the case of psychedelics, which we impute so much magic and power to. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. It's a wonderful thing to learn to be able to stand up and yell bullshit. Take psychedelics, not too often, (laughs) mostly mushrooms. Hello and welcome to Super Psychedelic. Today we're joined by Dr. Ben Sessa. Ben's professional bio might say he's the head of psychedelic medicine and co-founder at Awaken Life Sciences a licensed and approved psychedelic psychotherapist, a published medical and fictional author, and an experienced medical cannabis prescriber, among other things. But we also loved his uh, Twitter bio, which says, doctor, writer, researcher, psychedelic medicine lead for Awaken Life Sciences, MDMA and ketamine and psilocybin therapist, vinyl lover, determined pacifist, awake. Dr. Sessa, welcome. Hello, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Um, so I know we only have an hour, um, so I'm going to be like a sniper with my questions. I want to talk about drugs, policy, psychedelics, and your work at Awaken. But first off, you're based in Bristol, one of my favorite towns in the UK for our North American brethren. I would describe Bristol as a a more hippie Brooklyn almost. It's got the kind of cultural cachet of, of, you know, in the UK, but slightly more um, hippified. Um, did you grow up in Bristol? No, I grew up uh, all sorts of different places in the UK. Spent 12 years in London, grew up in the north of England, went to school in Reading near London, then down to the southwest, Taunton area, Devon, Somerset, and then uh, Bristol for the last 15 years. And I'm completely with you there on Bristol being such a sick place. It's um, it's fabulous. I call it the San Francisco of the UK. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not just that it's full of hippies and ravers and graffiti and great bands and superb art. Uh, it's also a center of real academic excellence with a world-class university, superb hospitals, and great research. So it's really got everything, including the bridge, like the Golden Gate Bridge, but we've got a little mini version of it. So, yeah, it's a fabulous city, and I urge anyone to come and visit. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful spot. You know, I grew up in Derbyshire, uh, in the kind of Midlands north, always slightly envious of Bristol's music scene, Massive Attack, Portishead, Stanton Warriors, Five Knuckle. I think Derby's only output was was White Town. So, uh, yeah, always very envious of the city, and, and I agree. I urge anyone to head there. Um your, let, let's start with your, your Twitter bio. It reads, awake, full stop. What does that mean to you? Um, very much about trying to have my finger on the pulse of evidence-based practice. Um, whilst I'm very much a member of what we would call the psychedelic community and all the beautiful colour 
and pageant that goes with raving and hippies and festivals and all of that. Um, I'm also very keen on redressing where what I see as pseudoscience um, and being awake to evidence-based practice. I think this is the best way to guide treatments for patients. Um, whilst the, the psychedelic community is a wonderful, colorful experience, and don't get me wrong, I love my festivals and parties, um, I think if we're going to move forward with this subject, we need to keep a firm eye on the research and um, that that kind of approach. So the awake part really refers to keeping a, a finger on the pulse of cutting-edge neuroscience. Mm. Do you think there's been an overreach over the last uh, couple of years as interest in psychedelics has grown? I mean, I think psychedelics as a medical subject is fascinating because there is this huge historical cultural interest in psychedelics that other parts of medicine don't have. You really don't get huge swathes of people interested in nephrology or hepatology or orthopedics, and you don't get conferences and festivals and gigs and all these kinds of things celebrating orthopedics and nephrology, but you do with psychedelics. So that puts us in a really weird position from a medical perspective because um, this is difficult stuff. This is cutting-edge neuroscience. Yet every person on the street has an opinion um, in ways that they wouldn't for other branches of medicine. So what we need to do is find a language to be as inclusive as possible for all people. Because whilst the psychedelic community um, has a lot to offer, it's not necessarily always the right approach for patients. Because what we want for patients is um, total um, inclusivity and people want the medical model. Mm. Now, just want to um, kind of scroll back, uh, talk a little bit about um, drugs specifically, and then we can kind of get on the topic of the, the kind of wider psychedelic movement and psychedelic medicine. Um, you know, as we mentioned, you're in the UK, and there's been a, you know a lot of interesting changes of late, and you know some MPs kind of pushing for um, liberalisation. What frustrates you about UK drug policy? Everything frustrates me about UK drug policy. It's absurd. All, all drug policy all over the world is rather absurd. We've had this 50-year war on drugs um, situation, um, which prohibits substances on the grounds that they could be dangerous. Prohibition doesn't work. If something is dangerous, it needs to be regulated. Um, you know, we don't ban knives or ban cars. Instead, we have these things, we accept that they're part of our society, and we regulate them. That's the way to keep them safe. If we banned scuba diving tomorrow, we wouldn't eliminate scuba diving. All we all we do is um, all sorts of uh, underground scuba diving centers would pop up with poor equipment, poor CEOs, no right to reply, no customer services, no supervision, no scrutiny, and people would continue to scuba dive from these underground centers or underwater centers, if you like, um, and they would die. And we'd see loads of um, morbidity associated with scuba diving. Um, so that's exactly what we do with drug policy. Banning things is just a, a burying the head in the sen sand mentality. If drugs are completely safe, then we don't need any regulation. If they are potentially dangerous or risky at times, then we need to regulate them. So drug policy that is anything short of a regulated market is very much sticking one's head in the sand. We've had 50 years of drug policy, of prohibitive drug policy, and all drug use has increased, all of it. Mm -hmm. All we've mm -hmm. done is handed the franchise to the mafia 
for the production and distribution of drugs. We haven't solved the problem. So what do we need? Another 50 years? Twice as many prisons? Will people then stop? I don't think they will. So we need to be innovative and creative. We need solutions that accept that drug use is um, a thing. It will happen. And what can we do to minimize the harm? And one way is to provide a regulated market. So yes, I'm very frustrated with all of the Home Secretaries of the last 50 years and their failure to address this. It's also rather embarrassing because the UK really does lead the world in terms of psychopharmacology research with these compounds. Mm -hmm. Yet our own domestic drug policy um, is not really addressing the problem. And as a result, people die. Um, Drug use is very high. Crime is very, very high. Um, And we're not solving the problem. We're creating the problem. We're making it worse. So Mm -hmm. creative, innovative reform of drug policy is essential. Yeah, I think uh, your point about pushing into the to the black market is is obviously valid as well, and and also it, it, nothing's really made safer. Um, people aren't getting the information they they need. You know, education's lacking when people inevitably reuse these substances, and obviously as well the, the you know the quality and the testing isn't there. Uh, you know, I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast. I remember, you know, in the nineties in in the UK ecstasy and MDMA becoming extremely popular and some some fairly high profile deaths um because of um you know drinking too much fluids um or you know not drinking enough um and it seems to me like a lot of that kind of stuff could be alleviated through better education and kind of regulated substances and providing testing things like that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've dealt with many drug deaths over the years working in addictions, many dozens, and every single one of them without fail has been due to prohibition. There's mm-hmm. the truth is that most drugs are taken most of the time by most people benignly. And that even includes things like crack cocaine and methamphetamine. I think the drug laws almost make people think that every time someone uses cocaine or heroin, they die. I mean, they clearly don't. Or, or um, we'd have queues around the corner for all the drug services. Um, most people can take these drugs safely. The reason they don't is because of their banned status. So people mm-hmm. use them alone. They don't tell their friends when they're suffering. They don't seek support and access services. They don't take a um, pure supply of the drugs. And they don't have education about how to take them safely. All of these drugs can, and most of the time, are taken safely. So... The in order to make them even safer, we need better drug education and regulation. Mm. Now, one of the problems with drug policy reform, I think, of recent years is um, there tends to be this perception that the people who want drug policy reform are the drug users. And that, you know, of course, hippies want drugs to be legal so they can get high without getting busted. That's actually not the reason we need drug policy reform. We need drug policy reform because these are the wrong wrong policies to deal with the issue. Um, It's not just to facilitate drug users. So, for example, horse riding. Yeah, I have no personal interest in horse riding whatsoever. Couldn't care less about horse riding. However, I'd like to know that the policies in place that regulate horse riding are the right ones, especially if due to poor policies, it's costing me the non-horse riding taxpayer, £20 billion a year to mop Mm -hmm. up the problems associated with lousy horse riding policies. Now, that's the situation with drugs. Even if you hate drugs and you never take any drugs, you still want drug policy reform because you are paying for the terrible Mm -hmm. 
um, problems. So drug policy reform is not about facilitating drug using for drug users. It's about the right social problem for a big social problem that will help all of us. Agreed. I also think there's a kind of uh, credibility gap and disconnect to kind of a distrust in institutions because of the information coming out. Um, you know, another example from the UK, I remember Brian Harvey, the pop star, I don't know if you remember him in, in E17. He, um, you know, unfortunately got on TV uh, once and um, uh, the interviewer asked him about drug use and he said he'd tried ecstasy and it was, he had a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, after that, he he got cancelled and his career really never recovered. Um, but of course, anybody that's had that experience, to your point, that a lot of people are using these substances without really any kind of downsides, know that to be true. That the institution is kind of forcing people to think that these are dangerous all of the time and there's no upside at all, I think gives kids this kind of impression that institutions are, are lying to them all the time. Yeah, I mean... This is one of the things, it's like, it's such a blunt instrument, drug prohibition. When I grew up um, as a child in the 70s and 80s, the message was, you know, smoking a spliff is the same as injecting heroin. Um, mm. And that kind of blunt message is just not true. It's not evidence-based and it's scaremongering as opposed to using a scientific credibility model to, to measure the harms and benefits of drugs. Um, I think, you know, the, the re one of the reasons there's been significant changes in drug policy in many other countries, I wish, at the, in the UK too, one of the reasons is that the general public these days are just more psychopharmacology savvy than they were mm. 40 years ago. Um, we all know that the big killer drugs are crack cocaine, methamphetamine and alcohol. Um, that's very clear. And we all know other people who use cannabis, magic mushrooms and ecstasy um, quite happily without significant problems. So that blunt message of ban everything is no longer um, accepted by the general public and people are starting to take a more nuanced view. Mm -hmm. I read this uh, a quote of yours that I, I really liked and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out. Drugs are central to my life. Just like you, I was born to a drug mother, injected minutes after birth and repeatedly dosed throughout my childhood. Drugs help me get up and go to work, sustain me throughout the day and relax me in the evenings, I'm a regular consumer of legal highs. Almost all of us are. My patients are simply self-medicating, and who can blame them? Their medicines, heroin, crack, alcohol, work better than mine at blunting life's sharp edges. I wonder if you could you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, again, I mean, it sounds like a very controversial statement, but it, it is absolutely true. You know, the, the arbitrary difference between illegal drugs and allowed drugs is a political um, one. Um, based on some very sinister origins, um, mm -hmm. racism and exclusion particularly. Um, and it's not evidence-based. You know, um, my mentor, Professor David Nutt, his very famous um, analysis of 20 drugs, ranking them in terms of safety and benefit. Um, if, if, if the drug laws in terms of, say, class A, B and C, D, et cetera, were correct, then all the most dangerous drugs should be at the top. But mm -hmm. his spread just showed that that's not the case. So instead, we have um, a heavy use of alcohol and tobacco, which are very, very toxic drugs. And other drugs like MDMA, um, cannabis and psilocybin um, are, you know, banned illegal substances. Yet we all know that they're relatively benign and indeed have amazing therapeutic potential. So trying to take a more subtle and nuanced view is essential. Um, and, you know, I. I can forgive people for their 
um, their their errors here. You know, they, mm. people have been sold this line for the last 50 years that these drugs like cannabis ecstasy, cannabis MDMA, psilocybin are, you know, dangerous, killer, addictive drugs. Um, and then now in the last few years, we're trying to tell people that that's not the case and that they're actually beneficial and useful um, for society. So, you know, you can understand why people are slow at picking this up, but it's time to change and it's time for people to wake up. So you mentioned, uh, you know, some interesting points there, kind of echoing some of the things that I've heard um, Dr. Carl Hart talk about, you know, the vast majority of people out there can you know, seem to be able to casually use, say, cocaine without that much um, downside. And then there's these kind of outliers um, that we're taught that are kind of the majority of people you know, run into problems with these drugs. Um, now, some people can ease, like I said, some people can use cocaine. The bankers can use cocaine on a Friday night and you know not suffer serious consequences. And then other people, it takes over their life. Um, you know, as an addiction specialist, you know, broadly, why do some people in your in your mind get addicted, and other people don't with the same substance? Yeah, well, I mean, the truth is that anyone can get addicted to any drug that has a strong physical addiction component. Mm -hmm. If um, whatever your attachment history or trauma history, if you take cocaine, alcohol, heroin regularly enough, your body will adapt. And you will require to take it all the time in order to avoid a painful withdrawal syndrome. So that can happen to anyone if you just take them regularly enough. But the people who tend to end up in drug services are, in the vast majority, people with a poor trauma history, lack of social supports, lack of education, um, lack of positive hope reasons to not take those drugs. So, for example, if you or I took cocaine regularly every day for weeks and weeks, we would become addicted. But because we're um, educated people with positive trauma histories or rather uh, secure attachments, we would engage with services, we'd go along to all the groups, we'd do, do as the team told us, and we'd recover quickly. Those people who continue to become addicted and remain in the chains of addiction have in the vast majority of cases these underlying psychosocial issues. So this is where just banning the drug doesn't make sense. I mean, take alcohol, for example. Um, if you've worked really hard all week, done all your work, handed in all your essays, looked after your family, your boss likes you, your kids like you, Friday night, have a pint of beer. Why not? Um, Saturday night, have a pint of beer. Why not? No problem. Now, if um, you're sitting there drinking a pint of beer at 9am on a Monday morning, there's something mm -hmm. wrong with your life. Now you can't blame the pint of beer. It's the same pint of beer that you drank quite happily on Friday night. So addiction is not really about the drugs. That's a red herring. Addiction is about the pattern of dosing. Um, not So similarly, just like you can take have a pint of beer on a Friday or Saturday night, you can have a, a spliff or even an ecstasy tablet, or even, controversial though it may sound, a line of cocaine. The mm -hmm. point is, do you stop on Sunday night? Now, if you live in terrible psychosocial circumstances, no job, no hope, surrounded by trauma and pain, no uh, transgenerational poor education, all of these kinds of psychosocial things, you may as well be drinking a pint of beer at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. So, again, we need to be more subtle, not just ban the substance, but look at the pattern of dosing and why people don't stop on a Sunday night and why some of us get up and go to work and look after our families because we want to 
and others, they may as well be still drinking. So again, mm-hmm. it's the subtleties of psychosocial issues, not the drug itself. Completely agree. So let's move on to psychedelics and then the kind of work that you're doing at Awaken. So you literally wrote the book on the psychedelic renaissance. <laughs> um, you've been in the field for decades. Who or what inspired you to commit to getting into this space? Okay, there's a number of reasons. I mean, I came across psychedelics in my youth. Um, I was a DJ in London in the 90s, so I was exposed to ecstasy and MDMA. Um, I grew up in a household which was very literary, so I knew about, you know, Ginsberg and Kerouac and Huxley and all of these kinds of beat authors and that psychedelic community. And I knew about the work done in the 50s and 60s with psychedelics in medicine. And then I went to medical school and uh, then uh, finished that and did medicine and surgery and went into psychiatry. And then all the way through, I would always talk to my tutors and say, you know, can, what can you tell me about that terrific growth of interest of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s? And then none of them knew. They all just said, what are you talking about? That's crazy. That never happened. So I decided to redress the balance and write a paper on psychedelics in 2004, which became the first published paper in the medical press since the 60s on psychedelics. Um, and then found myself within this fairly small community back then of researchers internationally. Um, so that was one thing that drove me, was to r- redress the balance of, of the lack of psychedelics on the medical curriculum and bringing it to the attention of my fellow psychiatrists. But the other thing that's driven me all the way through is just working in traditional medicine and seeing how ineffective our current treatments are and thinking there must be a better way. So what drives me more than anything else is is the plight of my patients and a desire to see them having positive, effective treatments that work. Um, and that's certainly what I see with the psychedelics. It's they, they offer this new therapeutic opportunity that we haven't had for a very long time in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And having been, um, you know, in this world for, for quite a while, you know, how have you seen the culture evolve and change um, and mature? And then on the flip side, you know, get immature in some ways. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on their kind of the over, you know, last two years specifically, but broadly the last 10 years in, the, in this world? Well, yeah, this psychedelic renaissance is fantastic. You know, 15 years ago, we were scraping around a few hundred pounds here or there for <laughs> a small pilot study. You know, now we've we've moved away from academia and universities and research, and we're actually talking about opening hospitals and clinics and mass public health care and rolling out programs for treatment across millions of people. That's a fantastic development. I'm all for the medicalization. Some people in the psychedelic community are somewhat cynical about this, and they call this corporatization, etc. I can I consider it increasing accessibility. Psychedelics are too good to stay within this tiny fraction of society who use them recreationally. They're too useful medically. So we need to find a mechanism to roll these out on a large scale for mass public health treatments. And it's really mm. exciting that we're in that place now. And we're talking about these kinds of mechanisms, getting the NHS involved, getting insurance companies involved, getting these drugs free on public health care. You know, they, they really are tremendously beneficial and they can benefit far more patients than the small number of hippies who've been using them for the last 50 years. So I'm all for medicalization or even if you want to call it consumer um, commercialization, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. It's for me, it's about increasing accessibility to more people who could benefit. 
Yeah. Um, I just want to double click on the kind of, you know, quote unquote, re recreational um, side that you mentioned there as well. And, and kind of in the context of the drug conversation we were just having, do you think mm -hmm. people should be able to go into a store and buy mushrooms? Um, I think people should be able to go into a licensed regulated outlet and buy mushrooms. I don't think you should be able to walk into the supermarket and buy a bag of heroin or a bag of cocaine or a bottle mm -hmm. of mushrooms. Um, uh, so that's, you know, and, and there's many things that are regulated and there's things that are completely unregulated. I don't believe they should just be totally unregulated like sugar or tea. Um, mm -hmm. Nor should they be banned. They should be regulated like cigarettes and, and alcohol are regulated. Licensed yeah. outlets um age restrictions um the opportunity for advice and support from education workers to um screening of certain patients all of those kinds of safeguards now of course none of those safeguards exist today um you know your heroin dealer will sell you as many bags of heroin as you want to a pregnant woman they wouldn't care less um and that's the situation that we have created with prohibition um the other way of looking at it is, you know, that word prohibition is interesting because when I started in drug policy reform 15, 20 years ago, we only ever used that word prohibition to describe the complete sociopolitical folly of the 1920s alcohol prohibition. And now it's being applied globally across all other drugs, which is absolutely correct because it's exactly the same thing. When we had alcohol prohibition in the 20s, all we did was hand the franchise to the mafia. And that's what yeah. we do today. Um and as a result, if you look at, say, what happened with that, um, we had things like moonshine. Now, if you're in the 1920s producing illegal alcohol and you've got your distillery in the woods, you're not going to make a 3% mild IPA. You're going <laughs> to make 85% moonshine. Because if you're going to get busted, you may as well get busted making the strongest possible stuff. And that's yeah. what we see. This whole growth of so-called skunkweed very high THC, very low CBD, um, which is now all over the place, um, is a direct result of prohibition. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to grow cannabis legally, you're going to grow the most killer stuff you can make. Um, and, you know, when I grew up as a teenager, the, the cannabis around was hashish from Lebanon and Pakistan um, and Morocco. And it was quite well balanced with THC and t CBD. It's impossible to get good low-grade hash these days. Everyone, all they've got is killer skunk with this very high THC level. So by having a regulated market, we will actually increase the portfolio and repertoire of available drugs, which will be an awful lot safer. It's a bit like having drugs that only serve whiskey and absinthe, you know, when someone actually just wants half a pint of beer. Um, but if you hand it to the mafia, they will only have whiskey and absinthe outlets. Right. They're not going to bother with beer outlets. So again regulation of drugs in a regulated market reduces harm and makes everything safer, not to mention the tax revenue that would come from that. The moonshiners don't make 3% IPAs. I love that. <laughs> uh, I also read on, on the kind of prohibition period, um, a lot of the local governments were poisoning um, supplies and, and resulted directly resulted in death. So they're poisoning these supplies to put people off drinking, which of course they still did and directly results in death. So just complete, complete madness. And you're right in, in you know, in Canada, where I live, um, the, the highest growth in SKUs for products has been in, you know, small dose, low dose, kind of balanced dose um, products, drink, whether that's kind of drinks or consumables, people that want to get, you know, high, but 
don't want to be stuck on a couch for for eight hours. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, yeah, that's right. It's like when they're when it's legal and available and regulated, you can have a much more nuanced range of choices, which has got to be safer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think there's a team out there in the business of psychedelic medicine with more experience collectively than at Awaken. Um, you know, you've talked a little bit about what makes you excited about your, your work there. Um, you personally do a lot of work with MDMA. Um, why are you so interested in that subject and in that substance specifically? Um, yeah, first to the first point, absolutely. Awaken Life Sciences has bar none the best academic and research and scientific board across all of the psychedelic startups. There's no question of that. Myself and Celia Morgan and Professor David Nutt and the Mitt Hoffers and Matt Johnson. Um, you know, we we these are all people that I've handpicked and I've known for years. So we built the company around expertise um, and academic kudos. Um, why do I like MDMA? Um, well, I mean, I think MDMA, ketamine, and psilocybin are all useful as tools for um, as adjuncts to psychotherapy. I particularly like MDMA because it's um, it's very safe and non-toxic. Um, it provides an excellent platform for the exploration of traumatic issues. It's the perfect tool for trauma-focused psychotherapy. If you were going to invent a tool for trauma-focused psychotherapy, you'd come up with MDMA. It's, it's short-acting. It's non-toxic. Um, it allows this access to repressed emotional um, uh, material. It turns off the amygdala turns off the fear center in the brain and allows you to do trauma-focused psychotherapy. So one of the big barriers of trauma-focused psychotherapy is that by the time you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and you've had a lifetime of trauma, you've become an absolute expert at avoiding your traumatic memory. You'll do anything but talk about that night when you were 10 years old and that thing happened. And so you you fail to uh, address these issues in psychotherapy and you drop out and you go back to the vodka and you go back to the heroin because it's better to just blunt the edges. MDMA provides this very unique few hours, this privileged few hours in which you can, for the first time in your life, talk freely about these forbidden avoidant subjects. And that makes it extremely powerful. Now, of course, ketamine and psilocybin have similar effects in some people. And they are absolutely um, vital and important tools. But I do have a particular penchant for MDMA. Mm -hmm. It allows you to witness the, the memory without truly feeling it and being brought back there. You still feel it. And, you know, don't get me wrong. People undergoing trauma-focused psychotherapy with MDMA are still, it's still a difficult slog. You're talking mm -hmm. about, the, the forbidden things that you would never normally go to. But with MDMA on board, you can just about do it. Um, it takes the edge off the extreme affect that goes with memory recall. And, you know, people with these traumatic memories, they can't, they can't even think about the thought of talking about it. Mm -hmm. They can't even use the word rape because it triggers the dissociation. And mm -hmm. under, under MDMA, it's quite remarkable, actually, Peter, when working with patients and seeing the look on their face where they've spent decades in psychotherapy but never been able to go there. And then on MDMA, you say, so can we talk about that night when you were 10? And they look at you with tears in their eyes and they say, yes, I can. I can't believe it. I can. I'm going to tell you all about it. And mm -hmm. they can finally do the trauma 
exposure work that they haven't been able to do for the last 30 or 40 years. And they surprise themselves at their ability. And what's mm -hmm. so crucial is it so selectively turns off um, the fear, fear response, but your other faculties are intact. And that's mm -hmm. very unique pharmacologically. You know, many drugs turn off the fear response. Bottle of vodka turns off the fear response. Bag of heroin turns off the fear response. But they're very messy drugs. Mm. MDMA does it just so selectively. All your other faculties are working. You can talk, you can debate, you can remember, you can reflect, you can talk about your memories. But crucially, it lasts the next day. So even when the drug's worn off the next day, I always ask the patients, you know, yesterday you talked for six hours about your trauma. Um, were you just high? Do you remember any of it? And they, mm -hmm. they always say, I remember it all clear as a bell. And I feel like I've been through it and I've resolved it. So it, essentially, it moves people from this treatment resistance group into this um, treatment effective group by simply providing them with a few hours in which they can do the trauma-focused psychotherapy. It's fascinating. Um, some of the most beautiful times I've had on that substance have been not, you know, obviously I've been at, at concerts and raves and, and that kind of thing, but just sitting down with a few select friends in a comfortable environment, a field, and not only are you comfortable talking about kind of personal things, you actively want to. It, it, there's something about it where you want to share and yeah, kind of deep compassion for the other person and, you know, mm. taking in all. It, it's such an incredibly powerful drug and substance. Mm. I've, I've often thought about, you know, what would it be like if you could, okay, yes, you're using it for a kind of addiction and trauma, but what about couples therapy? I know MAPS have talked a little bit about that, or even just sitting down with your significant other, or maybe your stiff upper lip, you know, British mother that had, you know, never really, uh, you know, loved you, but had that kind of resistance and just sat there and talked and opened up. No, absolutely. It's um, couples therapy. The beginning of MDMA research in the early 80s was with couples therapy and in group mm. therapy. So it has a history of that. And you're quite right. You know, the way most people take ecstasy um, recreationally is very externalizing. It's very much not like the way they tend to take classic psychedelics. People take classic psychedelics in much the same way as we use them clinically. You know, three or four people sitting in a darkened room around a candle listening to Pink Floyd um, <laughs> in a very pseudo-clinical um, way. Whereas people take ecstasy in a massive nightclub with 5,000 people with lasers and banging music and shouting and drinking beer. And so it's, it's interesting how different recreational ecstasy is from clinical MDMA and how close classical psychedelics are to both the recreational and clinical use. Um, and look, you're quite right. When it comes to raving, most people talk about this. So there's, there's the sort of two phases to the evening. There's the going out and the nightclubbing and the externalizing bit. But like you say, what a lot of people like even more is at the end of the night when you end, end up back at someone's house and you're sitting around in this small group talking. Well, that's the bit that we kind of mimic with clinical MDMA. And, mm -hmm. um, an interesting sideline there is with classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, around about 70 to 80% of people will report this mystical spiritual experience compared to only about 10% of people who report a mystical experience on ecstasy. But I, and this is my own personal feeling here, I think that's because of the way ecstasy is taken. I think if, if people took ecstasy in small settings 
intimate settings like we do clinically, I think we'd get a much higher percentage of people reporting psychospiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine a rave with 5,000 people lying on their their backs in the dark with headphones on in silence. I think we would see a bigger psychospiritual experience. So mm-hmm. when we give MDMA, we give it on the couch with headphones and eye shades. And when that's done, rather than all this externalizing experience of dancing and shouting and all that, that, it's turned inwards instead. And then MDMA behaves a lot more like a classic psychedelic with a lot more in the way of personal insight and even mystical spiritual experiences. Yeah. I'd love to get your, I mean, I I think I I kind of know, but, you know, certainly in the 90s, there were all these kind of, you know, uh, media kind of press stories about take ecstasy too much, you're going to get these holes in your brain. And then, you know, there's this kind of cultural, um, cultural kind of acceptance of, um, you know, come downs and things like that. And I think you did some research on, you know, showing that if you weren't in those kind of externalizing environments, you weren't pounding alcohol and, you know, staying up until six o'clock in the morning and all of that kind of stuff, that essentially evaporates. But could you talk a little bit about the kind of the toxicity scares, I guess you could call it, and then the the, the Blue Monday? No, absolutely. I mean, there's part of me, right, Peter, that doesn't want to talk about ecstasy at all, because what's mm-hmm. that got to do with the job? You know, yeah. it's a bit like asking a surgeon to talk about people who cut out their appendix on the kitchen table with a pair of rusty scissors and asking a a, a proper surgeon to comment on that. They Mm -hmm. would just say, no comment. What's that got to do with my work? And I almost want to say that about ecstasy, but you've asked Mm -hmm. me the question, so I'll answer it. Um, Yeah, I mean, like I said, the way that people take recreational ecstasy is very far from the way we use clinical MDMA. And we Mm -hmm. mustn't conflate the two and make inferences about the relative harms or benefits of clinical MDMA based on ravers. It's absurd. Um, but yeah, so one of the one of the well-reported anecdotes of taking recreational ecstasy is the come down effect. So when the drug wears off a sort of a low effect. And also this what's often called Blue Mondays or um Suicide Tuesdays, all sorts of words, this three or four days afterwards, this low affect. Um and it's and it's and don't get me wrong, that's a well-known and well-observed phenomenon amongst recreational ecstasy users. But the research has shown, as we showed in our paper, that this is due to multiple confounding factors. Firstly, most people take ecstasy at night, so there you go, you've missed a night's sleep, um, mm-hmm. which makes you feel rotten for a few days anyway. They then dance excessively, so excessive exercise. They don't eat. They have poor fluid balance. They take impure samples. They use other drugs. They use alcohol. Of course they feel rotten when they come down. It's a hangover. It's not the MDMA. And when we give clinical MDMA in a clinical setting for patients, they've come in, they've had a good night's sleep the night before. They've been preparing for this session for weeks with their therapist. They take the medicine at half past nine in the morning. They're up all day. They don't exercise. The drug is 100% pure. We monitor their fluid balance. They come back down to baseline by five or six in the evening. Um, They chat. They feel warm and comfortable in this setting. Um, They're being cared for by the therapists. They have a decent meal. They get a good night's sleep and they feel great. And we didn't see a single come down over 26 sessions, not one, and not a single person having affect drop in the days afterwards. Indeed, um, all of the patients had a seven-day afterglow effect 
much like you see with classic psychedelics. So it's all about context. Um, and recreational ecstasy is really nothing to do with clinical MDMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks a little bit about MDMA in the context of therapy and medicine. Are there any other breakthrough compounds that you're, that you're interested in or excited about? In this current atmosphere of psychedelic startups, there's a lot of energy being put into um, companies finding new chemical entities. Um, mm-hmm. Now, part of this is because it's good to expand our repertoire of available substances. It's also about companies wishing to have um, patents and mm-hmm. um, original um, molecules that they can patent for intellectual property. And that's uh, not a bad thing if that keeps companies afloat and provides a revenue source. Um, but of course, there are hundreds of com- compounds out there that are always already very good. Um, my experience clinically is that drugs like ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin, whilst obviously all different sub- subjectively and psychologically and pharmacologically, when used in the clinical setting, the differences are smaller than the similarities. So when you when you use these compounds as a tool to to increase and improve psychotherapy, they all behave fairly similarly. They all provide this peak experience that in conjunction with non-drug sessions of preparation and integration can be used to help a patient get past a stuckness and mm-hmm. help to move them forward and redress old narratives and come up with new narratives. Um, so they're all pretty similar. Um, I think there's there's a lot of interest in in DMT because it's short acting, but the drug experience is short acting. But the integration required is not short acting at all. A great deal of um, effort and support needs to go into that. Um, we at Awaken Life Sciences are also involved in new chemical entity development. Um, we're looking at a shorter acting MDMA. MDMA is a fantastic substance as an intactogen. Um, but the sort of six to eight hour session is quite cumbersome from a clinical point of view um, and certainly from a clinical deliverability point of view. Um, one of the things that's great about ketamine is it is very short acting. You're sort of up and down in 90 minutes. Um, if we could develop a, an MDMA type molecule that had the same intactogenic qualities, but you could be up and down in two or three hours, that would make it more clinically deliverable, which would make it more favorable to patients. Um, so it's worth looking at all of these things. Um, and, you know, in the works of people like Alexander Sasha Shulgin, he, he spent his whole life developing new clinical mo- molecules, um, tweaking this, tweaking that, seeing what would change. Um, I think another thing of interest here is, and there's again been a kickback from some of the psychedelic community, is the idea of removing the psychedelic effects of compounds. Um, I personally think that's superb creative pharmacology. You know, if we can develop an LSD or a DMT or a psilocybin that doesn't have psychedelic effect, but does have some kind of clinical effect, why not? Why not go there? Why not explore these areas? It's exactly what Sasha Shulgin did his whole life. Um, Now, and it doesn't mean we're going to lose the old ones. And, you know, I've heard some people in the psychedelic community saying, this is outrageous. You can't remove the psychedelic effects. Get your hands off our sacred molecules, someone said to me. Well, for a start, they're not your sacred molecules. And secondly, this is about patient accessibility and choice. Now, if I thought that by removing the psychoactivity of LSD and creating a new analog would then mean LSD itself miraculously disappeared from view, 
then yeah, I'd be against it. But no one's taking away LSD just because we come up with new analogs that might have different effects. So I'm all for this kind of creative pharmacology. Yeah, I think your initial point is is true as well, though. You know, there's there's a justification through having patents and IP, you know, through, essentially it enables you to raise capital um, through that process, whereas the existing um, prior art is, is much more difficult. But in many ways, you know, patients in the now would greatly benefit if we just, you know, turn the switch from illegal, inaccessible to more accessible, but also had, you know, more clinicians uh, with better training to administer this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, this is a real problem, the workforce. It's like when these drugs like MDMA and psilocybin are going to come online with approval in the next few years, there's going to be a huge bottleneck in terms of where patients can go to get them. And that's why groups like um, MAPS are on this huge training campaign at the moment, Mm -hmm. looking to get 30,000 therapists trained in the next few years. Um, At Awaken Life Sciences, we have our training program, and we can train um, clinicians to become psychedelic therapists. Um, At the moment, we're only limiting that to our own staff because we're opening new clinics, so we're recruiting new staff, so we're putting them through this training. But we will be rolling that out to other people in the future. I think an important part of that is that you have to be a clinician first. You can't do a three-week course on psychedelics and call yourself a clinician. Um, Just like you wouldn't do a three-week course on specialist brain surgery and call yourself a brain surgeon. You need to be a brain surgeon first, then you specialize in this specialist form of brain surgery. So, you know, a lot of people contact me and they email me and they go, oh, Ben, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. And I'm like, why? And they say, because I love taking LSD. And it's like, well, that's not good enough. You know, you you should say, I love working with depressed patients, people with PTSD. I've spent years training. I've seen hundreds of patients. I've worked in police stations, hospital wards, outpatient settings, um, schools. I've seen people suffering with these disorders. I know how to deal with dissociative episodes. You know, you need to be a clinician. You can't just become a clinician because you like the drugs. Mm-hmm. This is specialist form of psychotherapy. You need to be a psychotherapist first, and then mm-hmm. you add psychedelic therapy on top of that. Now, that upsets some people, especially people in the underground community who might have been working with these things for years. And they'll say, oh, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me the plant spirits taught me all I know. Um, you know, well, fair enough. But when it comes to patients making a choice, they're going to want to go to people with a- approved licensed training, um, people with scrutiny and supervision. And of course, everyone's open to it. You've just got to do the work. Mm-hmm. And the, the other point with uh, accessibility um, that I'd love to get your perspective on, I think, is affordability. Um, and kind of how, how do people get into these treatments? Um, how optimistic are you that um, these treats will be integrated into in the UK into the NHS or um, insurance-backed? Yeah, I'm very optimistic because they make absolute economic sense. Um, You know, people often ask me in conferences, you know, why is this not on the NHS? This is expensive. This is awful. It's just for rich people. My answer is ask the NHS. Don't ask me. (laughs) You know, of course we want it on the NHS. There's nothing I want more than this to be on the NHS or to be available to insurance companies. It costs what it costs. I don't care who pays that cost. I don't care if it's if it's nice, MHRA, the NHS, the GP, a CCG, 
um, AXA, Booper, Welcome, insurance companies, or a rich patient with the money in their pocket. It costs what it costs. Um, it will be on the NHS. These make absolute economic sense. So our, the cost of our eight-week outpatient treatment in Bristol is £6,000. Sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But if you think about it, if it works and it gets people better, it's a tiny amount of money compared to the cost of untreated mental illness. There's nothing more expensive in the public health than an untreated psychiatric patient. They cost millions over a lifetime. They go to hospital for inpatient stays. They take overdoses. They get, they offend. They end up in prison. They don't work. They want disability allowance. Social services get involved. Their children are taken away. They need a new liver. They need a new leg. They're homeless. Also, all the things that go with untreated mental illness, it's incredibly expensive. So if we can develop treatments that get people better, get them back to work, um, this is a massive economic thing. So I'm quite certain that eventually the NHS will wake up to this and it will be on the NHS because it will save them so much money, as it will for insurance companies. But, you know, the NHS is, is quite a slow beast and it takes a while to decide what to pay for. But I'm quite certain it will because it can't afford not to. Well said. Um, just conscious of time here, I've got a few more lightning round questions and then we can, uh, then we can wrap up. So um, what book would everyone benefit from reading? Well, I think you know the answer to that. The Psychedelic Renaissance by Ben <laughs> First published in 2012, a long time before people started using the term widespread. I did a second edition in 2017. It's a great, I do think it's a great textbook because it doesn't focus just on one drug. It gives you all the history and the pharmacology and the latest research up to 2017 in the, in the field. So it is a great starter book. What one piece of music takes you back to your childhood? Anything by the Beatles. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan and Hendrix and Donovan and all those hippie bands. But so anything by the Beatles, I would say. Lovely. Um, if you weren't working in therapy, what would your dream of job be? Well, if I hadn't gone to medical school, I wanted to be a social worker. Um, mm. I think that social work is a very incredibly noble profession um, that's massively undervalued. So that's what I'd be doing. Um, but if it was a dream job, um, I don't know. Uh, I think I'd be a, a, a more successful published author with mm. my novels being turned into screenplays and Hollywood movies. And finally, what subjects are you obsessed with right now? doesn't have to be therapy or medical related. Oh, uh, God, what subjects? Uh, I love physics. I didn't at mm. school, but I really, since, I, since studying psychedelics, I've got really into physics and philosophy and sociology and chemistry. Makes me, God, I sound really boring, don't I? Because <laughs> but actually, you know, I, I love music. I'm in a, I play in a band. I love that. I love going out. I love festival organizations. Um, I'd love to be in the entertainment industry, organizing festivals and gigs and that sort of thing. So I don't know. I'm, do you know what? I like everything. I'm very biased. What, uh, what instrument do you play? I play guitar, drums, bass, and piano. Nice. Nice. Multi-instrumentalist. Okay. Well, Dr. Sessa, this has been uh, truly a pleasure and fascinating stuff. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Well, thank you very much and good luck with the, uh, with the podcast. And uh, I wish you and all your listeners the very best of luck and fun.